0: Interrupting our usual program today, we share a conversation from PICTE Meets, a film series where PICTE experts meet thought leaders whose work is transforming our world. In this episode, Lord King, former governor of the Bank of England and co-author of the recent book Radical Uncertainty, is joined by Renaud De Planta, a senior managing partner of PICTE Group, where they explore the implications of decades of monetary policy and challenge quantitative methods for making decisions for a radically uncertain future.
1: So let's just start with the idea of radical uncertainty that you cover in your recent book. You've led the Bank of England uh, through uh, difficult times and you have regularly made decisions with with major implications for the UK economy. But presumably from time to time, these decisions were based on staff recommendations and probably sometimes on their forecasting models. Yet in your book, uh, radical uncertainty, you question the ability of statistical models, econometric models and the likes, uh, as tools for making good decisions, at least in situations of radical uncertainty. So so what is radical uncertainty and how does it differ from general uncertainty or quantifiable uh, risk and, and probabilities? Well, all uncertainty reflects a lack of
2: information. It could be a lack of information about the future or about the present and sometimes even the past. And I think we wanted to emphasise the importance of radical uncertainty because it is a situation in which you cannot quantify the risks involved. So if you're tossing a coin, for example, and you know it's a fair coin, then you know that if you toss it a thousand times, then close to 500 times it will come down heads and close to 500 times tails. In other words, we can use past frequencies to observe the likelihood of different outcomes and attach probabilities to it. But the number of situations in which we can do that is pretty limited. And it is based on the idea that what's happening now or in the future is going to be driven by exactly the same forces that drove events in the past. And that simply isn't true. The world is always changing. So, in our view, radical uncertainty is where you can't quantify it. And I think the best example I'll give you is really COVID. We knew that pandemics were possible. Indeed, we knew that pandemics were likely at some point. But there was no way that we had the information that would enable us to say that a virus would come out of China in December 2019, and the probability of that was 23 per cent or some other number. That would have been a very misleading statement and it would be much better for us to rely on qualitative statements of the sort a pandemic is likely at some point in the future therefore we better be prepared for it and i think one of the big mistakes in economic policy has been overconfidence in forecasts reliance on either point forecasts or the belief that particular scenarios would be realized, so you prepare for that scenario, but not for other possibilities, and that's always a big mistake.
1: Yeah, so let's explore some of those uh, concepts uh, with with some practical uh, global challenges we're facing, and and listening to you today resonates, of course, because, you know, October 2022, we face all sorts of new radical uncertainties, including geopolitical ones. We'll come to that in a moment, but let's start with the with a big um, shoe waiting to drop, uh, potentially. Uh, If we remember the great financial crisis at the time, a lot of people discovered that there was a lot of debt in the global markets, in the financial system. Uh, And now, interestingly, expressed in percentage of GDP, global debt, since the GFC, has actually not diminished. It has increased. So across households, corporations, government, we reckon today that the total debt to GDP worldwide has increased from about 200% at the onset of the GFC to about 260%. And in fact, in emerging markets, the proportion has increased even, even further. So, uh, And if we focus now on just the public debt among these global debt, Public debt has increased, according to our economic research, from about two-thirds of GDP to almost 100% of GDP. So now that has happened, and yet today we're waking up to a new situation of rising interest rates, and significantly rising interest rates, which raise, of course, all sorts of questions about the sustainability of, of this sovereign debt, but also not just the sovereign debt, but potentially also corporate debt. Now, the events of the past few weeks, in fact, of the past few days, in various pockets of the markets, I'm thinking of Italian government bonds and lately of G- British government bonds, the, the gilt market, are showing signs of vulnerability. Uh, and so the question for you, uh, do you think we're entering a new phase of radical financial instability? And where, where could that lead us to? So I'll try and divide the
2: the answer to this into two parts. One is that what we're seeing is a significant repricing of long-term debt. As I think markets are beginning to realise that the era of exceptionally low interest rates is coming to an end. We, we went through a period from around 1990 until very recently when long-term interest rates basically were just steadily declining throughout that period, particularly in real terms. And we ended up at a point where the long-term real interest rate was close to, or in some cases, below zero. And I'm not sure that is a remotely sustainable position for a market economy. One simple example, pension funds could not easily provide pensions if the only assets in which they could invest we're earning rates of return close to zero. But something had to give. And I think we are moving now into a period in which interest rates will move back up towards something something closer to the historical average. Who knows where it will go precisely? But nevertheless, I think we're going to move well away from interest rates being close to zero. Now, I don't regard that realization as creating instability in itself the aim of markets is to is to reprice that's what they actually are there for to reprice new information a new understanding of what the world is like and i think that when people say well we've never seen moves this quickly in a short period of time really you know i think the question i'll put back to people is well why do you think the level of interest rates 3 months ago was at all appropriate are we not moving to something more realistic the second part of the answer to your question is to tackle head on this problem of very large amounts of debt relative to underlying incomes right across the world. And I think this is this is serious, and it's something that will have to be tackled probably through a way of restructuring many of these debts. Some cases defaults, but other cases maybe simply a restructuring. And as you point out, we have sovereign debt problems. We are used to this in low-income economies, but we also see it now in the major emerging markets, which are in a much worse state now than they were in 2009, when they were bringing the world out of recession following the financial crisis. But We also see it in the G7 countries, where the sheer levels of government debt relative to GDP have gone right back up compared with the experience of the last 20, 30 years. You know, something is going to have to give on, on this front. Uh, now, on top of all that, I think we have two other major sources of debt which concern me. One is the of corporate debt and the way it's distributed across companies. Because I think we've seen, after a decade or more, of very low interest rates, that companies that ought to have either restructured their debt or gone out of business, have been able to survive because they could easily service the debt at very low interest rates, even though there was no prospect of their repaying the principal of the debt. These so-called zombie companies you can find in every continent of the globe. We've seen debt problems in China, we've seen them in emerging markets, we see it in Sectors of the G7 economies, we see it in the United States, debt is going to be a major issue. And resolving it all at roughly the same time, I think, is not something that we have the capacity easily to do. And then on top of all that, I think you've got embedded leverage, borrowing hidden in financial markets. A good example of that is the realization in the last couple of weeks that pension funds in Britain had borrowed through derivative transactions significant amounts so they could invest in riskier assets to earn a higher rate of return. And they had not prepared themselves for the risk that was associated with that, namely that were guilt prices, i.e. bond yields to go up, they would have to meet cash margin calls. And they had not put in place any mechanism for dealing with that easily. So, uh, I, I think a lot of problems will start to emerge in different parts of the both financial system and the real economy, as well as sovereign debt. And it's going to be a difficult period of five years, I think, for us to work through that. There are benefits at the end because we should end up with a world economy with a lot lower debt levels, which I think will be a welcome and much more stable outcome.
1: Well thank you. Uh, that uh, triggers a few follow on questions on my side. You mentioned the the word debt restructuring" when you were alluding to sovereign debt, and as you said we've been used to that with emerging countries, but with developed countries uh, we haven 't really seen much of that, possibly with the exception of Greece about ten years ago. But it may reignite some the so called doom loop uh, because the sovereign debt is held by Someone And as we know, the banking system, insurance system and so on holds a lot of that government debt, partly also driven by regulations. So could we see a reawakening of this doom loop and possibly not only in, um, in the Eurozone, but, you know, some other countries used to say we're immune from that problem because we, we have our own central bank, we print our own currency. Now, we see that in times of rising inflation even a country like the uk can be find itself in a difficult situation where on one hand a quantitative tightening is is probably required and uh, rising rates are, are required and on the other hand we see that it creates a lot of volatility in the markets potentially even solvent at least liquidity if not solvency issues with a number of market participants as you, as you alluded to so could you could you see that sort of doom loop coming back and that would bring fair amount of uncertainty and volatility in the markets? I think it's
2: difficult to know what will happen. It could happen. And I think the risk is that when you think about debt restructuring, what you have in mind is that the creditors come together as a group and absorb some of the burden of the debt by debt forgiveness and the debtor gets some relief. Now that's fine if you've got creditors that can absorb those losses. And of course. I think the banking system is in better shape in the G7 countries now than it was during the financial crisis, but there are still limits on its ability to absorb large losses. And of course, when it comes to low income countries, we've always assumed that it would be the wealthy countries that would bear the burden of debt forgiveness, but they themselves now have significant amounts of government debt. So it's very hard to know when it would lead to a kind of doom loop, but I, I think the the fact that debt burdens are so high and we may start to discover how high it is a real challenge for the future. You see it in a in a small way, perhaps in the monetary union in Europe, where with the target two balances, Italy has an enormous liability to Germany, and you know, the monetary authorities in Europe will say, Oh, this doesn't matter because it will never be realized. But it's there on the balance sheet, and it could one day you know, cause a serious problem. But this is, it's very hard to I don't think you can put a probability on it, a number on it. That's what radical uncertainty means. And I think there's one other point that we should reflect on, which is certainly in the last week or so in the UK, people have talked about the fact that there's been a significant repricing of debt and this has caused dysfunction in the guilt market. Now I don't think there has been dysfunction in that sense. The whole point of a market is to reprice. And when you get a situation where there is new information and people maybe realise there's a lot more uncertainty. So in the UK, does the government have a plan for ensuring that the public finances are sustainable? And if people question that and they don't have the information about what the government will do in the future, then there is A, a lot of uncertainty and b no one quite knows what the right new price of bonds is. So whenever you get a big piece of news, you will get volatility as the price discovery process in markets operates, where people are trying to find out what other people think, and they're buying and selling to test the market. And that's bound to be a period of of price volatility. We saw that in March 2020 in the US Treasury market and in other financial markets, where People say, well, gosh, we haven't seen these movements for a long while. Well, that's not surprising. If we all suddenly discover we've got a global pandemic, you know that there is going to be a significant repricing of a wide range of assets. And you don't want the central bank to prevent that process from occurring. So I think there is real risk in central banks from trying to pretend that they can put a floor under the price of any asset Uh, And the role of a central bank is not to buy assets, but to lend cash against good collateral. That's the function of a central bank. And I think, you know, you may end up generating more uncertainty and volatility by stepping in to try to slow the movement of a price and then realizing that you can't do it indefinitely and have to step back out again.
1: Indeed. Now, the the repricing you're alluding to is is driven – Right now, to a large extent, by the surge of, in inflation, which has caught many by, by surprise. So with your experience, how do you, what's the major difference between the inflation cycle we're seeing now to the one we saw in the 70s or, or early 80s, or even in the 90s, where there was less inflation, but still. So it, how different is it uh, in terms of inflationary cycle?
2: Well, there's one similarity and one difference. The similarity is that both reflect a mistake. By policymakers. In 2020 and 21, we entered the pandemic with broadly demand equal to supply and stable inflation. The pandemic reduced the potential supply of the economy, at least temporarily. And what central banks did was to try and boost demand. Well, if you've got too much money chasing too few goods, which was a classic description of, of COVID in the early months then you'll get inflation. And that's what has happened. And that was both predictable and predicted. So I think this was an intellectual mistake. I don't think this was a mistake by individuals in central banks. I think this was an intellectual mistake generated by an approach to monetary policy produced by academics who said that inflation is determined entirely by expectations and expectations are driven by the target. And if you take that view, then any deviation of inflation from target is almost by definition transitory. It's a temporary thing. Uh, That turned out to be a serious mistake. There was a a monetary injection into the economy that led to too much money chasing too few goods, higher inflation. There was a similar mistake uh, back in the 1970s when policymakers thought there was a permanent trade off between inflation and unemployment. And by accepting a bit higher inflation, we could have lower unemployment. And that turned out to be wrong. And the central banks that reacted strongly and quickly to higher inflation in the nineteen seventies, primarily the Bundesbank and the Swiss National Bank, were the countries that had the not only the lowest inflation but also the shortest recession. So I think Central banks have made serious policy errors in 20 and 21. Now, the difference, I think, and this is important, the big difference is that it took a long time in the 70s and 80s for central banks to realise that they made big mistakes and to be willing to do what was needed to bring inflation back down. So they had a decade really of significantly higher inflation. The mistakes made in 2021 have not been repeated. Central banks are not printing money. The QE that was done in 2021 was not necessary, it was undesirable. The furlough schemes were a good idea, but that was all we really needed to do, not have monetary stimulus. Uh, but central banks have stopped doing additional QE by and large, and as long as they stick to that, then the degree of monetary Tightening that's being put in place now will bring inflation down. So underlying inflation will probably come back to target, you know, around two years or so, provided central banks stick with it. And they will—you can see from the way the Federal Reserve is responding—that they realize they may have to be pretty tough for a period to demonstrate to people that they are serious about bringing inflation back to the target. Uh, So I think there's a difference there and we can bring inflation back, but there's no doubt there was a mistake and the current inflation is not just due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact on energy and food prices.
1: That's part of it, yes, but it's not all of it. Well, it's very refreshing to to hear your view. I hope that the acting central bankers today will reflect. uh, on those uh, events and we'll uh, recognize that they have actually made a policy errors. I haven't heard many of them saying so uh, for now but who knows that may come but now you are saying for 2 years uh, we'll have we have a sort of 2 year transition towards hopefully uh, underlying inflation rates which are more in line with with historical average now there there are two forces at play today which you know some people argue are new uh, at least And new in over the past few decades. One is deglobalization, you know, the reshoring of a lot of production lines, which is exacerbated by the war. And you can bet not only COVID was one trigger, but it started even before COVID. The whole notion of operational resilience, where companies want to control and diversify their sourcing and, and integrate vertically, possibly a bit more have multiple sources of funding over multiple continents. So that's one trend which some people argue is intrinsically inflationary because we are moving away from the cheapest source of, of, of any good or intermediate goods. The second uh, structural change is the energy transition and more broadly defined, maybe a transition to a less polluting manufacturing, less polluting packaging, less polluting transportation. And that again, intrinsically, is, uh, it seems to me, is intrinsically inflationary. Now, do you share those views? And if that's the case, then why are you fairly optimistic, saying in two years we'll move back to sort of normal underlying inflation? Because that process of reshoring and transition may last many more years than just uh, two or three years. What's your view on that?
2: So I'm not saying we will necessarily get back in two years for underlying inflation. Headline inflation could be all over the place because it's yep. so much influenced by energy prices. But underlying inflation could and can be brought down. But I think that the, the, the big issue here is that the factors you mentioned about the underlying environment on inflationary pressures, they're all real and they will indeed mean that the climate in which central banks are setting monetary policy will be less favourable to them than was the case maybe for 30 years. But I think what that means is that central banks need to set higher interest rates to achieve the inflation target. It doesn't mean that they can't achieve the inflation target. And uh, in the long run, inflation reflects the monetary policy stance. So everything you say is right, but it means I think that we're moving back to an era in which not only long-term interest rates, but also short-term interest rates Will be well away from the zero levels that we've been used to for some while
1: now. Now I can't resist the temptation to ask you what, what how far are we in this repricing? Because uh, you know we have moved quite a bit. I mean I think the guilds were yielding as low as 0.5 percent, and we are uh, over four. The U.S. Treasury, the ten-year hit four percent last night. and We're moved a long way from uh, uh, two years back. So we, how much in that repricing? How advanced are we? Do you think we've done? Half of it, two-third, less than that? Well, I don't know. And this is why we live
2: in a world of radical uncertainty. But if you were to think about the idea that you know, long-term real interest rates, 3% or so in the long run, that order of magnitude, inflation 2%, you'd expect long-term interest rates to be you know, certainly in the 5 to 6% range. Uh, and short rates... Will move around that according to the state of the business cycle. Now you know it could be lower than that, could be a bit higher at times. Who knows? But the big point I want to make is that wherever it is, it's a long way from zero. And so the world we have been living in, where both short and long rates have been close to zero, I think is an era that was, you know, that that was a disequilibrium. I don't think that was sustainable. And so we want markets gradually to work out and discover where these rates will go. I don't think central banks can decide where they go. Long-run rates are going to be set in the market. But they will be considerably higher than the last two or three decades.
1: Now, I was talking to another retired central bank a few weeks ago, and I asked him, what's the biggest change you expect uh, in 10 years? If we wake up in 10 years and we look back, and uh, he said the independence of central bank uh, will will have seriously eroded. So if you have to identify the biggest risk for monetary policy over the longer run, what is it? Is it, unlike what you're outlining now, maybe a surprise that inflation is permanently higher? Is it the loss of central bank independence? Is it central bank losses on their own balance sheet? And in some cases, the need to bring fresh equity, which actually means... Bring fresh equity from the government, which may actually exacerbate the loss of independence, or what else? What do you see as the biggest risk for monetary policy in the in the longer run?
2: I think the biggest risk would be the failure of central banks in the next few years to focus on their prime mission of price stability, and instead try to uh, create popularity with the government and more generally by pursuing a wider range of objectives. and I think the real risk is if they find it painful to bring inflation down, and they, they end up saying to themselves, well, we, we, we could bring underlying inflation down to 2% again, but it's going to create a lot of problems in the market for households paying much higher rates for their mortgages, or it's going to mean a recession where businesses are put into bankruptcy and Unemployment rises significantly. This, the government doesn't like It's putting pressure on us. Maybe we should try to navigate a fine-tune a way through to a softer landing. I think if they take that view, we may well end up with inflation coming down, certainly, but not getting back all the way to 2%. And the risk then is that central banks and policymakers more generally decide, well, it's not so bad. We'll stay where we are. But that means that the next time there is a movement in the economy that pushes inflation up, it's going to be even tougher to bring inflation back down and you get this gradual drift up in inflation, partly because no one is alive who can remember the 1970s and they have to rediscover for themselves all over again what happens when you let inflation get out of control. So I don't think there's a risk in terms of governments changing the legal position of central banks and making them less independent. But I do think there is a risk to de facto independence, with governments putting pressure on central banks to do a range of other things, where the government then says, oh, but this has to involve us as well. And so you end up with this pretense that central banks and governments have to work closely together to achieve a wide range of objectives. And it's quite hard to argue against in a in the public arena that people shouldn't work together. But the whole point of independent central banking monetary policy is that as far as interest rates are concerned and QE, that central banks make their decisions quite independently of government. And, and I think they need to be tough to demonstrate that. We'll see. I think that um, Jay Powell in the Federal Reserve has moved a long way from the position in which he Listened to his economists and produced the average inflation targeting framework of 2020, which never really made any sense. And I think he's basically thrown all of that out of the window, together with forward guidance, and said, You know, I'm going to be like Paul Volcker. Mm -hmm. He talks about Paul Volcker in his speeches quite often now. And what that means is we'll do what? We'll keep raising interest rates until we're pretty confident that inflation is on its way back down to 2%. If that means a recession, it means a recession. Now, if he adopts that view, he's got a much better chance of achieving the inflation target and persuading markets and wage bargainers and price setters
1: that they should expect inflation to go back to 2%. The, 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 this notion of 2%, which was the sort of accepted conventional wisdom among developed market uh, central banks, some people are, are quite being quite vocal about challenging this notion of 2%. They're saying 2% is too low. You know, the, new, the new target should be 3 or 4 uh, That could be an easy way to move the goalpost. And, and do you think that we can expect something like that over the coming few years? I don't
2: know what the political environment will produce, but I don't think it would be sensible to do that. Hmm. The, the arguments for changing it all tend to come out of the same academic line of reasoning which is that people are so uh, committed to believing the inflation target that if you change the target, you can change people's behaviour in a way that means if you raise the inflation target, keep interest rates where they are, the real interest rate is lower, people spend more, you get a recovery. I I simply think this is only true in a narrow academic model, and it's not true in the world. The problem that many monetary economists were concerned about was that underlying inflation in the US averaged 1.5% rather than 2% for about five years. Now, they then said, oh, this is terrible. We must change the target or have average inflation targeting so that we can compensate for this undershoot of the target by having inflation at, say, 3% for a couple of years. Then we'll bring it back to 2 This is hubris. There's no way we can control inflation that precisely, as we have now seen. Um, And if you can't get inflation up from one and a half to two, why should anyone believe that if you raise
1: the target to three, that you'll hit three? It's just easier to achieve if you are in an inflationary environment, that's all.
2: So, I, I, I just don't think that changing the target because they're worried about interest rates being unable to go below zero makes any sense. And it's only a matter of months ago since academic economists were talking seriously about the need to find ways of implementing negative interest rates. Well, we're not going to be in a world of negative interest rates for quite a long while now. So I don't think that's a practical issue at present or really relevant.
1: Good. Now, you, you, you sound quite confident that the Fed and other central banks will, will fight the inflation till the end. But let's move to uh, uh, one of the elephant in the room at the moment, which is geopolitics. Uh, many of us feel that we are entering a period of radical uncertainty in terms of geopolitics with Ukraine, with Taiwan, other flashpoints on, on the horizon. And uh, personally, I, I struggle to remember more geopolitical uncertainty and tensions uh, at any time in the past 50 years at least. Now that could, so what does that mean for economic policy making, for monetary policy? And at a time where there's a lot of public debt already outstanding and a lot of people are saying we need to rearm, we need to spend more on military spending. That's certainly the case of uh, the EU, uh, the EU side of NATO. Uh, but many other countries are are, are willing to uh, need to probably spend more for defense, there could come a point where the the servicing costs, I mean, where where those spending is not affordable. So could that, particularly if this happens at the time of recession, and there are many signs of an upcoming recession, could that actually change the, the dialogue, change the rhetoric, change the guidance of central banks and, and precipitate a pivot, which many people don't see coming. And listening to you doesn't sound like you expect any pivot immediately, but geopolitics could actually change the situation. What what do you think of that?
2: It certainly means that central banks should focus far less on quantitative forecasts and far more on on a broad brush approach to tackling to thinking about debt issues and debt problems, and it means that countries ought to have a stable, resilient policy framework. So, when it comes to, to government budgets, you don't really want a government to have a budget that appears sustainable only in a narrow set of circumstances. If we're lucky in the future, it's got to have a situation in which its budget position looks looks resilient uh, and you know, the idea of having an independent central bank committed solely to price stability has the great virtue that you know that everyone in it, that institution knows what its mission is. As soon as you complicate it by asking a central bank to deal with climate change or other issues, you're distracting the central bank from focusing on its main, main mission. You know, we don't know what will happen with any of these geopolitical events. You can tell scenarios where inflation continues to rise because of the impact of energy prices if things go badly. But you can also tell a scenario in which there is some resolution of the conflict in Ukraine or change in the politics in Europe, which manages to restore energy supplies to Europe. And if energy prices were to return to their pre-invasion levels, Then, a year from now, inflation could have collapsed from around 10% to around 2%. Now, that would be a misleading picture because it would go back up again the next year, other things being equal. But I think headline inflation could be extraordinarily volatile over the next uh, 12, 18 months. and Central banks really need to focus on underlying inflation, domestically generated inflation.
1: In, indeed. Now, central banks are, are busy working on different things than only monetary policy. And one project that many have embarked on in the past few years is uh, the notion of digital central bank uh, currencies. We find it interesting because we at Pictet are no big fans of so-called crypto currencies, uh, not least because we don't really consider them currencies. But the arrival potentially of major central banks like the ECB or the People's Bank of China uh, and the planned introduction uh, of some form of digital uh, public, you know, public digital currency could uh, change the dynamics quite a bit. Do you think it will work? And, you know, there are different forms of digital uh, central bank, digital currencies, wholesale or retail, and that's not a small difference. It's not a small nuance, but do you think this introduction of official central bank uh, digital currencies will work and, and what sort of impact this could have on monetary policy and, and more broadly on financial markets? It's a big question, but I think it's quite a structural one for the years to come.
2: So I was part of the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee that produced a report on central bank digital currencies. And we had the subtitle A Solution in Search of a Problem. But the question is what is the problem to which CBDCs are meant to be the answer? Well I think it's not it's not a new currency. It's the key point. It's not a new currency. It's a way of improving the payment system. So where it would be relevant would be in those countries where there is a clear and evident need to improve the payment system and to do so by using the central bank. Now, central banks in all countries are heavily involved with the payment system and often have the responsibility of making sure there are improvements to it. But in some countries, I'll take the UK as an example, it's far from obvious what the role of a CBDC would be. At the wholesale level, there is no case for it because in one sense, we already have it. Quantitative easing means that all commercial banks have direct access and have bank accounts with the Bank of England. So, that it, the existence of reserves balances with the central bank effectively is a wholesale CBDC. At the retail level, well, certainly in a developed country, no central bank wants to have millions and millions of customers. It doesn't really want to have any customers at all. It would just like to have a limited number of people in the financial sector, uh, but certainly not retail investors. So the CBDC that people talk about essentially is where commercial banks offer what are called digital wallets, and these are guaranteed by the central bank. But that's incredibly close to what we have already, which is if I have a bank account, I'm pretty confident that that's going to be guaranteed by the government, either through direct deposit insurance or through the fact that the Bank of England will step in to prevent the banking system as a whole from failing. So, I don't see that actually adds anything to the payment system. I can go onto the internet banking of my commercial bank today and I could make a transfer to you in euros once I know the name and number of your bank account and that would just go straight through. So, in a sense, we've got digital banking already. It's operated through the commercial banking system. Now, it's not true to quite the same extent in the US. It's more complex there. Uh, and it's certainly not true in many emerging market or developing countries. So the issue really is not, I think, CBDCs as such. The issue is how to improve the payment system. The big problem in this area is obviously cross-border payments. But CBDCs don't help directly in that sense, because what you need is to have central bank systems communicating with each other. Well, they could do that now. Uh, But the the real challenge to cross-border payments is that governments have decided they want to make it difficult to make cross-border payments for reasons of combating terrorism, crime and money laundering. And that's the big problem. If you want to make a cross-border payment, all the obstacles that your your own bank will put in the way of it reflect the fact that governments want to make it difficult to make cross-border payments without a considerable number of checks uh, being being made on the people at either end of the transaction. And they're not going to abandon that when we have a CBDC or even a network of CBDC. So I don't see CBDCs as being the answer. To the big question, the big question is how can we make more efficient the payment systems that we have, and it may—I think central banks have a role to play in that, certainly. But it's not obvious to me that they need to create bank accounts for either households or for the financial sector in order to make that work.
1: Good. Well, I think many banks will be delighted to to hear you answer. I, I wish uh, all central bankers of major major central banks would, would share your view, but it seems some have slightly more ambitious plans there, which I think... If you ask central banks why they are doing all this research on CBDCs,
2: mm-hmm. the answer is, well, everyone else is doing it, so we better do it as well. We don't want to be left behind. To which my answer is that when you see a group of lemmings go over the cliff, that, that's a, a case where you want to be at the back
1: of the queue, not the front of it. Absolutely. I'm conscious of time. So maybe to, to conclude a uh, uh, last question, uh, after all the doom and gloom we covered with the, the macro situation, is there is there hope in in your view for a more stable and uh, even more predictable uh, future, less radical uncertainty? Can you see a, a period emerging where, where there is less radical uncertainty and, and what would it take from policymakers uh, to get there?
2: Well, there will always be radical uncertainty in the sense that I don't think the future is just drawing out of a hat, drawing from a distribution of outcomes, which reflects the past as well. There will always be radical uncertainty. That doesn't mean to say that it will be more, more unstable at all. It could be more stable in the future. And I think the big plus to hang on to here is that we've been through an extremely unusual period With very low interest rates, which have been very damaging. I understand how we got into it, but it's been continuing for far too long. And I think that era of very low interest rates has partly been responsible through phenomena like zombie companies for low productivity growth rates. And I think that if we now are moving back to an era of more normal interest rates, and that if we can navigate the problems of the high debt levels that have built up in that period of low rates and bring debt levels down, then I think we'll be in a position where resources of investment and people can once again move from poorly performing companies to good companies and productivity growth will recover. And I see absolutely no reason why we can't be optimistic about future productivity
1: growth, which is very good news for our children and grandchildren. Well, that's, that's a, a nice way to finish on a positive note. Uncertain times can also be uh, stable times. And so we hope for that uh, scenario and uh, for participating in this conversation. On behalf of everyone, I want to thank you very much, Marvin King, for your very valuable contribution. Thank you. Have a great day to everyone. Thank you very much.
0: This episode of Founding Conversations starred Lord King and Ronald de Planta. The show is a collaboration between PICTE, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, and the How to Academy, London's leading public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Clara Bertrand, and Vasily Christendoulou. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.